Turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 1. My daughter from Colorado was in this weekend. Teresa's taking her to the airport this morning. So last night we had all seven grandkids in the house. The oldest is four. So they kind of got along with each other. So that was good. We are working through the doctrinal statement of the church. Last week we handed out copies of it. I have some left over here on the piano. You can pick one up afterwards. Um, We began with the discussion of why do we even have a doctrinal statement? Why don't we just tell people we believe the Bible and go with that? Well, we do believe the Bible. In fact, that was last week's lesson about the scripture, what we believe about the Bible. The problem is, you go to different churches and you say, do you believe the Bible? And they say, yes, of course we believe the Bible. Well, what do you believe about the Bible? And then it gets more complicated. Because there are churches who believe, as we do, that it is the inerrant word of God given to us to guide our lives and to show us what is necessary for salvation. And then there are those who believe, well, most of it's true, but maybe not all of it. Or it contains the truth, but it has some myth and other stuff thrown in. So we understand that we need to define what it means when we say we believe the Bible. Today, we're going on to talk about God. We are on section two, if you have the... uh, copy of the doctrinal statement. We're going to do number two and we're going to do number 12 if we don't run out of time. Article two of the Constitution says, we believe that the Godhead eternally exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that these three are one God having precisely the same nature, attributes, and perfections, and worthy of precisely the same homage, confidence, and obedience. We're going to talk today about the Trinity. We're going to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. Then we're going to talk about the first person and the third person. The second person, Jesus, we'll actually have a separate lesson about that later. Okay? So, but before we do that... We have to talk about why we believe in God. Now, I'm not going to cheat and jump to the next chart, which is to tell you why we really believe in God. But there are proofs that have come down to the church throughout history called arguments for the existence of God. And we're going to step through these very quickly. Okay, The first group of them, and these are groups of arguments, is the cosmological argument. You know, right, that everything you come in contact with came about because of some cause, okay? That chair doesn't exist by accident. Somebody purchased it, somebody built it, somebody put it together, it has a cause. And you know that about everything in the universe. My grandchildren were there last night. 
I know my grandchildren came from my children. I know my children came from my wife. There's a cause, okay? We know this, right? If everything has a cause, what started it all off? Was there a first cause? Philosophically, we talk about things that are contingent, that is, things that could not be. Does that make sense? I can envision a world that that chair does not exist in. That chair is contingent. In the same way that I can envision a world, well, that I'm not in. Okay? We are contingent beings. Therefore, we are brought into existence by some cause. Well, is there something, back to the last question, that doesn't have a cause that is not a contingent being, but is in fact a necessary being. If this has a cause and that has a cause and that has a cause, is there something at the beginning to start that? And that first cause we refer to as God. Now, from a scientific standpoint, you can trace all the way back in the modern scientific discussions to the Big Bang. Well, what was there before the... They don't know. They speculate. There is an old joke. It's not a joke, actually. It's actually something that people say. You know, in Hindu mythology, the Earth is riding on the back of a giant turtle through the universe. Okay? So some clever... This has been around since at least the 1800s. Some clever person asks, what is the turtle sitting on top of? To which the Hindu scholar said, another turtle. Well, what is that turtle standing on top? No, no, no. It's turtles all the way down. You can actually Google on turtles all the way down. Okay? But we know there has to be something that isn't contingent, but that is necessary, that started the whole process going, and that something is God. Teleological arguments basically revolve around the idea, if I see something, we keep talking about this chair, so I'll just keep talking about this chair. We see this chair, and we think, you know, that chair has this... It looks like it was designed by somebody. If you were walking through the woods and there on the ground you found a watch, you would pick that watch up and you know there's a rock right there and you have some idea that the rock is a natural thing, but the watch you'd go, eh, ah, it looks like somebody designed it. They always use a watch because when this argument you know, came into its modern version, a watch was the most complicated mechanical thing they had, okay? In, once again, the modern version. These arguments go all the way back to the beginning of, well, Christianity. So if there is a design in nature, there has to be a designer. There has to be somebody who said, hmm, I think I'll make it this way, as opposed to 
that way or as opposed to not making it at all. That is the theological argument. The ontological argument is a little strange to me, okay? There's lots of versions of this. And if you happen to be a philosopher, which I'm not, they seem to like this argument. Let's do a little mental exercise. Envision in your mind the thing greater than which nothing can be imagined, okay? You're envisioning in your mind, right, the biggest monster, the biggest something. But wait a minute. If I made it two feet taller, it would be bigger. So keep working at this until you imagine that which nothing greater than that exists. Now, does that thing exist? Well, if it doesn't exist... It's not the greatest thing that you can imagine because you could imagine one that did exist which would be greater than the one that didn't exist. So there's something greater than the greatest non-existent thing would be God that exists. You have to be a philosopher to think about that one for a while. The moral argument is actually the one that I really hang on to, okay? The, uh, if you read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, it is the moral argument that brought him to God, okay? You see children playing, and uh, somebody takes something from somebody. <laughs> My grandchildren do this all the time. And once they get old enough to communicate, somebody inevitably is going to say, that's not fair. That's not right. You look at we as adults, and you see something horrible happen in the world, and you go, that's not right. Well, if you think that something's not right, there must be some standard by which we are judging right and wrong. Where does that standard come from? Well, obviously, society just made it up. Well, if that's true, then how can we condemn the Nazis for killing six million Jews if it was just, well, it was just their culture? But we know that that was wrong. And, and, we know that people who don't think it's wrong, there's something wrong with them. Somewhere we have this innate idea that there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. Now, as we will see in a week or two, we're all fallen human beings. And in our fallenness, we oftentimes mistake what is right and what is wrong, but in doing so, we still think there's a right and wrong. A couple of weeks ago, it was interesting, I read uh, two very short books. I did my annual reading of C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man. And The Abolition of Man is about the idea of, are there moral absolutes? And if there's not moral absolutes, how could you come up with any moral statement at all? 
And his answer is, you can't. So I read that. It has the virtue of being short. It's about 100 pages. But then I read another book called Ethics, A Very Short Introduction, obviously written by somebody who's very non-Christian. Because in the first chapter, he dismisses religion as being unethical to begin with. And then he spends the rest of the book trying to find a basis for ethics. And guess what? He kind of admits he never really gets there. But hey, we're going to pretend that this works and we're going to live in it. Why? Because we all have some innate idea of right and wrong. Now, if there is a right and wrong, where did that sense of right and wrong come from? It had to come from something other than you, something other than just some evolutionary process. It comes from God. Now, years ago, I taught these four arguments even faster than I did today. And I got to the end of it and I said, but these arguments don't matter to much, us, to much to us anymore. Why? Because we're not reasonable people. We're not. We live in a society that just kind of feels certain things. And when we look at arguments for the existence of God, we don't think real hard. So what's the purpose of these arguments? Are these arguments going to convince an unbeliever to believe in God? Well, actually, they might. As I said, C.S. Lewis was very much driven by the moral argument to believe in God. But what it does show us is that it is not unreasonable to believe in God. They may not force you to believe, but they will allow you to believe and still maintain your rational powers. So, what is the biblical argument for the existence of God. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created. The Bible actually never sets out to prove the existence of God. In fact, what it does is it declares the existence of God. Back to last week's argument about Scripture. If there is a God... And that God is a personal, intelligent being that is not just the force. May the force be with you. And if that God chose to communicate to us, could he do so? Well, of course he could. And that's what we understand the scripture to be. And the, descript and the scripture declares in the first sentence that God exists. Now... The scripture also tells us that nature proclaims the glory of God. It also tells us that the invisible attributes are clearly seen through the created order, but you and I have chosen to reject that. That's the lesson in a couple of weeks. So, we believe in the existence of God. We as a church believe in an existence of God. We believe that what you think about God is probably the most important thoughts you have because it determines everything else about your life. Do you remember the brief discussion last week about people who study theology kind of in the abstract, like they're sitting on a balcony watching the travelers go by versus somebody who's actually down there on the journey traveling 
They're involved in it. We want to be people who believe in God, not just at some abstract name the being for which there can be nothing greater than. We want to be those who are involved in everyday life and direct our life by and around and through the existence of God. If God exists, it affects everything in our life. Okay, number one, God exists. Yes, sir. The beginning of what? What are you saying? The beginning of what, what? In the beginning. Ah. I mean, I can give you my favorite quote of St. Augustine. St. Augustine was asked, what was before the beginning? And his answer was, God was preparing hell for people who ask too many questions. <laughs> now, now, in St. Augustine's defense, he did go on to say that that's not a good answer. <laughs> but I always liked that answer. No, 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 that, that is a good question. Back to the doctrinal statement. We believe that the Godhead eternally exists in three persons. What we talk about in Genesis chapter 1 is the beginning of the world as we know it. I know there's some discussion about did he create, and there was this long pause, and then, I mean, we could get into that. We're not going to talk about that. We know that there was a time that the earth wasn't. Now, the question is, what does time mean if the earth wasn't? But we believe that there was never a time when God wasn't. In the beginning, God. And then it says later, let us, this is next week's lesson, let us make man in our image. Us. Us. A plural. Why us? Because God was having a relationship with him, with the Trinity before. So we are contingent beings. God is a necessary being. So in the beginning... To try to answer your question, in the beginning is the beginning of what we understand as the created order. Everything that we know in the material world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We have brief glimpses of things that were happening before that. Angels fighting each other. That lesson comes in a couple of weeks. Um, before anything was created, God was choosing. <laughs> we don't want to go there. So, number one, God exists. Number two, he exists in three persons. And this is where we start getting picky. Therefore, Matthew 8, uh, 28, 19, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There we have three Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Yet, we're also told, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
I've mentioned in here before that my Catholic friend says that, you know, he doesn't know why people want to argue with Christians about, you know, the existence of God or predestination or salvation. He said, if they want to poke holes at us, they should go through the Trinity because the Trinity is a difficult thing to understand. The early Christian church used this diagram not to convince you of the existence of the Trinity, but to remind you what the Trinity is. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Holy Spirit, and the Father is not the Son. And the Son is not the Holy Spirit. You get the picture, right? Why is this important? Well, it's important because the Bible communicates to us this idea Let us make man in our image. Who is the us? Is the us, uh, I don't know, the angels, whatever. No. We understand the us to be the members of the Trinity. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. We speak of, well, unless you're just mentally ill, You are one being, and you are one person. And we understand that, you know, that concept. It is difficult for us to take one being and say that he is three persons. And we oftentimes get in trouble because we want to come up with human analogies. And most of the time, those get us in trouble. One of them is some kind of idea that, well, in the Old Testament, God was the Father. In the New Testament, God was, well, the first part of it, God was Jesus. And in the third part of it, God is the Holy Spirit. It's like they're taking turns. Except the Scripture doesn't teach us that. The Scripture says that the Son prays to the Father. The Father directs the Son The Holy Spirit, I mean, they're all there simultaneously. What this means is that from a philosophical standpoint, that in the unity of God, there is the diversity of different persons. The Greek philosophers were always arguing, if everything is one, how can there be difference? And if everything is different, how can there be something unifying them together? In Christian circles, that is God. So the first thing is God exists, and the second thing is that God exists in three persons. That is the Trinity. Um, I always, always encourage people to think about everything and try to work it out and figure it out. At some point, I do just say, this is what the Bible teaches, okay? It's hard to understand because we don't have a human analogy to go with it, at least not a human analogy that works. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, 
the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This one is, come on, this is an easy question, Jesus. We know that because we just studied John, and then we studied 1 John and 2 John and 3 John, and all of them he talks about Jesus being God, coming in human flesh. Now, we're going to talk about Jesus in a separate lesson, so don't get too far ahead. But what is this teaching us? What did the doctrinal statements say? All of them existed from eternity. There are those who believe that God the Father existed, and it says he beget the Son. Well, to some people that means there was a time when Jesus wasn't. There was the Father, and at some point, uh, the Father and Mary produced a baby, and that baby was, no. John clearly teaches us that from the beginning, Jesus was present. Jesus was the creative force that created the world in which we live today. In the beginning was the word, and from the rest of the passage, we understand that that word is Jesus. Second uh, Corinthians 13, 14. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Once again, we see all three of the members. I told you when we were working through 1 John, right? There is some times where you get a little confused because he's talking about God and am I talking about Jesus or am I talking about the Holy Spirit or am I talking about uh, God the Father? And the answer in John's mind was yes. Because in John's mind, he understood the three so well that at times he would just say God. And it could be Jesus, it could be the Holy Spirit, it could be the Father, it could be all of them. Um, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in the last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, who he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus is not just some good guy who happened to be walking around the earth between whatever it was, 5 B.C. and 30 B.C. He is God. He is the representation of God in human form to us We'll have a discussion about that in the weeks to come. So, God exists. He exists in three persons, and all three are one God. They each have the, precisely the same nature, attributes, and perfections. That sentence is taken from the doctrinal statement. You say, wait a minute, that can't possibly be. Didn't Jesus say sometimes, I don't even know when the second coming is happening? I don't know what you're doing. We understand from the scripture that Jesus had 
all the attributes of God. But the illustration that I like to use, because, well, it's in the Bible, is that God, that Jesus, when he took on human form, took those attributes and set them aside, not not having them, but not using them unless directed to do so by the Father. You see, Jesus, in human form, is trying to teach you and me how to live the Christian life in human form. So Jesus isn't going to be all-powerful unless the God, God the Father tells him to be. My favorite illustration of this. They're crossing the Sea of Galilee. It's the middle of the night. Horrible storm pops up, and the disciples are terrified. They are freaking out. They are bailing water as fast as they can. They're all going to die. And Jesus is asleep in the boat. And they wake him up. Don't you care? My opinion, what did they want Jesus to do? They wanted him to help bail water. (laughs) I have this vision. Jesus waking up, stretching a little bit, looking around and going, stop. And the storm stopped. What was he demonstrating? The omnipotence of God, the power of the creator to command that which he had created. And all of a sudden it says the disciples who had been terrified of the storm were now now terrified of this person who was sitting in the boat with them. (laughs) They understood storms. They didn't understand God sitting in the boat. They each have precisely the same nature, attributes, and perfection. Each are worthy of precisely the same homage, confidence, and obedience. Now, I don't know too many people today who would say, okay, I'm going to follow Jesus, but I'm not going to follow God the Father. Okay, Um, There probably are some. You know, you hear people who say, okay, the Sermon on the Mount's really cool. I'll follow it, but the rest of the Bible kind of stinks. You know, all this hell and stuff. Who wants that? Today, we're more prone to look at the Holy Spirit and go, eh, that's kind of nebulous. I won't believe that. All are to be obeyed. Here's just a list of the attributes of God. Um, I actually taught this whole list one time, but it took a long time. Section 12, you do notice that in the new edition they use normal numbers and not Roman numerals, but anyway. Section 12 is very lengthy, and it revolves around the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, and given our shortage of time, I'm going to encourage you to read all of that, and I'm going to tell you a few distinctive points that we believe about the Holy Spirit. Number one, we believe the Holy Spirit exists, obviously. In the Old Testament, the Spirit indwelled certain people at certain times 
for certain functions. Saul had the Holy Spirit, Saul the king, and then it left. The Holy Spirit would come and the Holy Spirit would leave as necessary to accomplish particular tasks. We believe that all Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, you can, even as a believer, tell the Holy Spirit, eh, I don't think I'll listen to you. But that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's not there. The Holy Spirit is in all believers from the time of their conversion until, well, I guess when they get to heaven, I don't, we'll have a discussion about that some other time. So, we believe that his abode in the world in this special sense will cease when Christ comes to receive his own at the completion of the church. Last sentence. Paragraph two. Well, let's do this one. The discussion we have today with our fellow believers oftentimes revolves around the gifts of the Spirit, namely speaking in tongues and miracles. Um, I told you last week that at some point in the history of the early history of this church, uh, one of the pastors wanted to make this into a charismatic church. And the elders of the church said, no, we're not going to do that. What does that mean? We believe that some gifts of the Holy Spirit, such as speaking in tongues and miraculous healings, were temporary. Why could the apostles walk around and heal people just by walking by them? Why did Jesus do miracles? Miracles were a way to authenticate the ministry of Jesus to demonstrate that he was God, to authenticate the ministry of the apostles to demonstrate that they were in fact speaking for God. In the absence of the written word of God that was available to all people, which we have today. We believe that speaking in tongues was never the common or necessary sign of the baptism nor of the filling of the Holy Spirit. I had a charismatic friend. Salvation is like a shoe. It always comes with a soul. No. It always comes with a tongue. <laughs> he believed that the demonstration that you were in fact converted was that you spoke in tongues. Now, what do we mean when we talk about speaking in tongues? If you remember the early church in the book of Acts, this was really cool. Peter gets up to talk to them. And, you know, we have people in Jerusalem at this time from all over the known world. And to use modern languages, okay, just to make it a little, you know, these group of people over here speak French. These people speak German. These people speak Arabic. These people, these people speak some other language. And Peter not being the most educated person in the world, starts speaking in good old Kone Greek, or maybe Hebrew, I don't know, Kone Greek, and he's speaking, and guess what? They're hearing French. 
they're hearing German. They're hearing Arabic. They're hearing whatever their language was. And it says, wow. I mean, the people are saying, wow, this is cool. And we talk about that speaking in tongues. The ability to understand what is being communicated, even though you are not familiar with the language being communicated. It's pretty, it's miraculous. Today, when we talk about speaking in tongues, we talk about some unintelligible language. And then, in theory, someone stands up and translates that for the good of the congregation. And we talk about that being the Spirit speaking. Now, we believe that those miraculous gifts were given to authenticate the teaching of the apostles. Now, let me make sure I tell you what this is not saying. God can do anything God wants to do. Does God miraculously heal people today? Yes. What this is saying is the idea that I have that gift and I could go down to Harris Hospital and walk through the ward and at will just heal every one of them, thus demonstrating my relationship with the Holy Spirit. We don't believe that as a necessary gift. But God can do whatever God wants to do. Don't ever forget that. God is not bound by our doctrinal statement. <laughs> there is some evidence that in some parts of the world, the miraculous gifts are more evident because God is using that in that particular time and place to accomplish his purpose. And that's interesting. And we should celebrate when that happens. But the fact that you and I, I don't know about you, I don't speak in tongues does not demonstrate that I'm not a believer. Yeah, I got that right. It's not a necessary component. And that's what we believe about. Stan's just dying to ask a question. <laughs> Keep it up. Um, other traditions, all Orthodox Christians are in agreement about the nature of God. The key word there is Orthodox Christian. Um, I read a fascinating article years ago in a um, Christian journal, Are Mormons Christian? And the Mormons who are working very hard to rebrand themselves as their full, their right name, by the way, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, want us to understand that they are Christians. But the reality is they do not believe every orthodox statement about the nature of God. To them, God the Father, who the Scripture clearly says is a spirit, to them, God the Father, well, was is what, just like you are right now. At one time. And Jesus is, well, the biological child of God the Father. And the Holy Spirit, well, the Holy Spirit is some kind of nebulous force. 
but there's no connection. So this article, which was trying to be very kind, by the way, said, eh, probably not, because of their understanding of the nature of God. Um, Cults will usually change some aspect of the Trinity in some form or fashion. Probably they want to add themselves. The doctrine of the Trinity separates Christians from most, parentheses all, other religions. If you talk about the three great monotheistic religions in the world today, all of which, by the way, grew out of, well, Abraham, there is Christianity, there is Judaism, and there is Islam. Islam refers to Christians as tritheist. We believe in three gods. They recognize Jesus as being a prophet. They don't recognize him as being the son of God. And the Jews, well, they simply recognize God the Father, i.e. the Old Testament God, and they refuse to acknowledge that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. Conclusion. Uh, We've covered that. We've covered that. We believe the Holy Spirit dwells in all believers and is the source of all power and all acceptable worship and service. The thing we have that sets us apart from, well, Muslims. Muslims are, I mean, a devout Muslim is trying to follow, you know, he, you know, he gives to the poor, he tries to do these good works, but he doesn't have the Spirit of God empowering him to do those good works. They're just outward motions. The Scripture teaches that we have the Holy Spirit to accomplish that which God the Father has commanded through the Son that we do. We talked about this multiple times in John, 1 John, and I think 2 John. All three members of the Trinity are involved in saving you and me. We're going to have a discussion about salvation in a couple of weeks. God the Father chooses. The Son provides a way to salvation. The Spirit draws us to salvation. The Spirit embeds us and allows us to do that which God has instructed us to do. There is an old hymn. Do this and live, the law requires, but gives us no power. A better way His grace does bring, it bids us fly, and gives us wings. And that is the Holy Spirit working in us. You see, sometimes we, as a non-charismatic church, get very worried that if we talk too much about the Holy Spirit, we'll be like those people over there. We don't want to be like those people over there. So we neglect. We'll talk about Jesus because we need Jesus to get saved. And sometimes we, hmm, no. We need to remember all three members of the Trinity and how they participate in your salvation and my salvation. (sighs) Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father,
Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for allowing the Holy Spirit to indwell us and direct us. I pray, Lord, that we would be obedient to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.